again, darklings. Thank you for sticking with me so far. Today, I'm going to read for you a few of my absolute favorite creepypasta stories. All of these stories can be found at creepypasta.com. These stories are fiction as far as I'm concerned because, you know, I kind of have to sleep sometime. Also, I would like to point out that I have listener donations turned on on anchor.fm if anyone would like to help me build up the money for a better mic slash editing software. And I believe that is all of my announcements for today, so without further ado, let's get creepy. Here comes Zalgo by Chris Phoenix. Forgive the length of this message. This is the first and possibly the last time I'll have access to a computer. So I thought I'd better write this down while I can and get it to those who should know. I'm leaving town. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just getting as far away as I can. Okay, so... Some of you may know I took out a loan and opened my auto shop a little over a year ago. Business has been going decently well, I can't complain, and I've always been grateful to all of my customers who would come to me exclusively when God knows there were already so many established places in town. I've been doing well enough that I was able to hire on my buddy Neil a few months ago, and he's been working really hard and helping out really well, as I always knew he would. Well. I needed to take a day and go to Lamont's class with Rebecca last month. And so I entrusted the shop to Neil for the morning and the afternoon. That's the day, I think, everything actually started. Because when I got back, he seemed to be in a stupor and was covered in oil. He even had some smeared across his face, as if he tried to drink it or something. I told him to go home and clean himself up because we had no clients at the moment, and I could take care of anyone who came in for the time being. He came back 45 minutes later, but he was much quieter than usual. He worked as well as he ever did, but something just seemed off about him. I asked him if anything had happened while I was out, and he just shook his head. I asked how many clients we had had, and he just muttered something unintelligible. I asked him to repeat himself, and he turned and glared at me, and for the briefest moment, I could have sworn his eyes appeared to be completely black. No iris, no sclera, just utter, all-consuming blackness. I stumbled back and bumped a shelf, knocking things down. When I looked back at him, he was still looking at me. But he didn't seem to be glaring hatefully the way he had been before. He was just kind of out of it. Just a couple, he answered. Some woman and then a tattooed biker-looking dude. I assumed most of them went, must have... Mm. I assumed one of them must have asked for an oil change, and that's when he spilled it. So, I asked if he had any trouble, and he simply shrugged. I had looked around the garage while he was gone, and saw no traces of an oil spill, so whatever had happened, he must have gotten it all on himself, and none of it anywhere else, miraculously? But he seemed reluctant to talk about it, 
so I didn't press the issue and we worked on throughout the day. That day and the next were relatively normal, other than him be still being super awkward and quiet. I asked him if he'd like to go out and get his lunch while I attended the shop, and he said, Sure. When he came back, I was busy doing a diagnostic for a client, so he put the food on the counter in the office to wait for me, and he went ahead and ate. I finished up with that customer. We'd have to keep her car overnight to figure out just why it kept dying on her. So I asked Neil to give her a ride home, and then I went to grab my food. He brought me some Chinese food and iced tea, so I opened the soy sauce packets to pour some over my food when I noticed the strangest thing. It was as if the soy sauce was a living thing somehow, spreading out like dozens of squirming inky black maggots when it fell into the rice and burying itself inside. I took the fork and started to scoop out the rice to look deeper inside, and small smoky tendrils would rise from the rice occasionally and dissipate. I was incredibly hungry at that point, but I was way too creeped out to eat, so I chunked it and the ice tea in the garbage and decided I'd just wait till I got home that evening to eat something that I had made with my own hands. I'd never in my life seen anything remotely like that, and I couldn't even fathom how I would ask Neil if he'd noticed something similar. As cold and distanced as he'd seemed lately, I was sure he would look at me like I was Looney Tunes, so I just shut up about it. That Friday, we went down to the old watering hole, as we always do to get some drinks and watch the local bands play and Neil was just as quiet and distanced as he'd had been all week. He's not a bad-looking fellow, though, and so despite him not really going out of his way to speak anyone, a woman went over to where he was sitting and started talking to him, and they ended up leaving together that night. Monday morning, I tried breaking the ice by asking how his weekend went. He gave me a nod and muttered, All right. I asked him if he'd gotten lucky with the young woman I saw him with, and he gave me the smallest grin, which was quite possibly the first grin I'd seen on his face in a week, and he said, It went well. I didn't pressure him for details. I knew he'd share if he chose to, and his small grin was enough to assuage my worries and lend me some hope that he might get back to his old self soon. That day was relatively busy until about 3 p.m., so I finally had a spare moment to sit in the office and listen to the radio while I waited on my next client. So there I was, leaning back in my chair with my feet propped up on my desk, when I swiveled around and looked at my bulletin board that sits behind my head with all manners of clippings stuck to it. I had a few Sunday comic strips such as Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes that I'd read a few hundred times since I'd opened the shop there, but that day, something was different. The first panel seemed normal, but each subsequent panel inky black tendrils crept out from the edges of the frame and from behind the characters. Blood drips from the ears and eyes and sometimes even their noses and in each of the strips one of the character would be saying he comes. I sat staring in astonishment for a moment before I realized the tendrils were moving ever so slowly and then each of the characters heads turned even more slowly towards me and I threw myself back away from the bulletin board sliding over my desk and onto the floor I ran into the garage and kneeled for Neil 
I could not be the only one to see this, and to my surprise, he was gone. And so I hesitantly walked over to the garage office and peeked inside. The comics were still corrupted, but they no longer appeared to be moving. I crept over to it and reached out to pluck one of the comics free when I noticed the inky black tendrils started to sweep across the page towards where my fingers were at least three times as fast as they'd moved before, and I jerked my hand away. Nothing good could possibly come from letting that blot of ink touch my skin. Of course, I ripped the entire bulletin board down, burned it in a tin trash can out back, and never spoke of it again. That night, I went home and my wife was already in bed fast asleep. My mind was racing, and I couldn't even bring myself to eat dinner that night. With no one to vent my worries to, I fell into a restless sleep and kept waking to nightmare after nightmare seemingly every hour of the night until I just gave up on sleep entirely. That Friday, I went to the bar again, and even though my wife couldn't drink, being pregnant and all, and Neil wasn't any, really any fun to hang out with anymore, and none of my other friends could seem to be reached. I just needed to get a good buzz, and I'd started to hang... I just needed to get a good buzz, and I'd start feeling better, I reckoned. After downing a couple beers, I excused myself to the restroom when I noticed I was more inebriated than I estimated. So I leaned across the sink to splash some water in onto my face when I heard it. Like a sheet of fabric being dragged across the floor, a voice rasped ever so quietly out of the dream. It sounded like a prolonged exhale for the longest time until I finally recognized the words amongst all the vowels. He comes. Cracks appeared in the porcelain, snaking out from the ring around the drain. At least, they looked like cracks at first, but after a few seconds, I recognized them at the same, as the same tendrils of corruption I'd seen in the comics earlier that week, snaking their way slowly along. I stumbled backwards out of the bathroom door and into someone's chest. I turned around and stared up into pitch black eyes of a six and a half foot biker with tattoos covering every piece of exposed skin besides his hands and head. I stumbled quickly away from him. His evil piercing gaze followed me as I retreated through the bar. It felt like a dream where whenever you're running for your life, it feels like running through quicksand. And as I moved through the room, I noticed that the black biker wasn't the only one staring at me. It seemed every pair of eyes in the place was focused on me, and more than half of those eyes appeared to be perfectly black, with no hint of iris or sclera. A few lips moved, and though I couldn't hear their voices over the sound of the jukebox, I could easily guess what they were saying. He comes. I didn't get asleep. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I didn't get a wink of sleep that night. I haven't been getting sleep much for the past couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, which I'm guessing those of you who've spoken to me recently have guessed. I keep seeing those pitch black eyes staring at me, and I'm afraid one will turn and whisper those words at me, staring deep into my soul with that evil glare. Every time I go near a sink or go to grab a bite to eat, I'm afraid I'll see those inky, snaking tendrils squiggling towards me. Even my wife has seemed cold and distant lately. Then, 
Tonight, as I'm driving home from work, struggling to keep my eyes open so I don't drift into oncoming traffic, my cell phone rang, and it was Rebecca. She was on her way to the hospital to have our baby, and for the first time in two weeks, I was actually happy. She was in the labor room, strapped to a monitor when I got there, watching her contractions. She barely noticed when I walked in, but didn't seem to startle when I sat down beside her and took her hand in mine. I tried talking to her, but she was unresponsive, and I was so tired I didn't even realize that I had started to drip off to sleep until the nurses came in and started moving her to the delivery room half an hour later. I put on scrubs and a hairnet and went in with her and told her to hold my hand and coached her like they'd trained us in Lamaze when she started cursing and screaming. I was prepared for that as well. As for her ever-tightening grip on my hand, but... When I saw the movement in her tummy, my mind started to reel. The doctor said the baby was crowning and told her to push. I echoed her those orders and she screamed at me with a voice I couldn't even begin to describe. When I looked down at her, she was staring up at me with the same eyes I'd seen on the biker. The same eyes I thought I'd seen on Neil weeks before. I tried to jerk my hand away, but she maintained her grip. Black, tar-like blood splashed the front of the doctor's scrubs, but he seemed to pay no heed. And when I looked at her tummy again, black veins had started to stand out beneath her skin, pulsating. She continued to stare at me, and she was no longer screaming, just gritting, those obsidian eyes boring into me. To invoke the Nesperdian hive mind of chaos, she breathed in her raspy voice. He who waits behind the wall, the doctor continued as he stared down at the child. My child, laying silently cradled in his blood-stained hands. He looked up and raised the baby, and it appeared to be covered in the oozing black inky liquid, much like that that had been covered in Neil weeks prior. It didn't cry out, but it was alive, and it moved when he held it up. When its eyes opened, they were just as black as my wife's as black as the doctors. In unison, they breathed his name, Zalgo. I ripped my hand free of my wife's iron grip and stumbled out of the broom, barreling into the nurses passing in the corridor just outside. When I stood up and looked back in the room, I could see the inky black tendrils seeming to extend from the doctor and my newborn across the floor to where I stood. I turned and ran down the hall to the elevator and slammed my finger into the buttons. When I looked back, the tendrils had come into the hallway, yet no one else seemed to notice until it slithered over their feet and up their legs, at which point they abruptly stopped and turned and looked at me with those same obsidian eyes. I abandoned my effort to call the elevator and broke into a panic run for the stairs. I ran down 15 flights of stairs. I was... I ran down 15 flights of stairs all the way to the lobby tore ass into the parking lot, hopped into my car, and started driving. I didn't know where the fuck I was going, I just had to get the fuck away from there, and I didn't know if I was going crazy, but it certainly felt like it. But I just couldn't be around anyone anymore. They all have those same eyes, and the same dead stares, and even my child, oh my god, my baby. I still saw those eyes staring at me from the cars beside me. And by some strange coincidence, the same biker from previous Friday night at the bar pulled up beside me, an hour and a half away from the hospital, and followed me for nearly two hours. 
He'd turn and stare at me, grinning. I couldn't see his eyes through his sunglasses this time, but I knew. I knew it was the same guy. His tattoos seemed to move of their own free will. The flaming skull on his right bicep began bleeding from its eye sockets. As soon as I could, I slammed on my brakes, allowing him to fly past me as I swerved to my left and did a U-turn. I think I lost him, and that was about an hour ago. I'm at a Motel 3, hours outside of town, and the first place I found that has Wi-Fi. And I'm tired. I'm shaking. My hand itches where my wife's nail scratched me open. I honestly don't know what to do or who I can turn to. This story will sound insane, and I'll probably be institutionalized, and I'm not sure that it wouldn't be the best thing for me. But I can't bear to look into those eyes anymore. Every time I see someone new, they stare at me and I start to panic because I know. I just know it's out there coming for me. Whatever it is. And even when I lay down and start to drift off to sleep, I hear those words. He comes. Gateway of the Mind. In 1983, a team of deeply pious scientists conducted a radical experiment in an undisclosed facility. The scientists had theorized that a human without access to the senses or a way to perceive stimuli would be able to perceive the presence of God. They believed that the five senses clouded our awareness of eternity, and without them, a human could establish contact with God by thought. An elderly man, who claimed to have nothing left to live for, was the only test subject to volunteer. To purge him of all of his senses, the scientists performed a complex operation in which every sensory nerve connection to the brain was surgically severed. Although the test subject retained full muscular function, he could not see, hear, taste, smell, or feel, with no possible way to communicate with or even sense the outside world. He was just alone in his thoughts. Scientists monitored him as he spoke aloud about his state of mind and jumbled slurred sentences that he couldn't even hear. After four days, the man claimed to be hearing hushed unintelligible voices in his head. Assuming it was an onset of psychosis, the scientists paid little attention to the man's concerns. Two days later, the man cried that he could hear his dead wife speaking with him, and even more he could communicate back. The scientists were intrigued, but were not convinced until the subject started naming dead relatives of the scientists. He repeated personal information to the scientists that only their dead spouses and parents would have known. At this point, a sizable portion of the scientists left the study. After a week of conversing with the deceased through his thoughts, the subject became distressed, saying the voices were overwhelming. 
In every waking moment, his consciousness was bombarded by hundreds of voices that refused to leave him alone. He frequently threw himself against the wall, trying to elicit a pain response. He begged the scientists for sedatives so he could escape the voices by sleeping. This tactic worked for three days, until he started having severe night terrors. The subject repeatedly said that he could see and hear the deceased in his dreams. Only a day later, the subject began to scream and claw at his non-functioning eyes, hoping to sense something in the physical world. The hysterical subject now said the voices of the dead were deafening and hostile, speaking of hell and the end of the world. At one point, he yelled, No heaven! No forgiveness! for five hours straight. He continually begged to be killed, but the scientists were convinced that he was close to establishing contact with God. After another day, the subject could no longer form coherent sentences. Seemingly mad, he started to bite off chunks of flesh from his arms. The scientists rushed into the test chamber and restrained him to a table so that he could not kill himself. After a few hours of being tied down, the subject halted his struggling and screaming. He stared blankly at the ceiling as teardrops silently streaked across his face. For two weeks, the subject had to be manually rehydrated due to his constant crying. Eventually, he turned his head and despite his blindness, made focused eye contact with the scientist for the first time in the study. He whispered, I have spoken with God, and he has abandoned us. And his vitals stopped. There was no apparent cause of his death. No End House by Brian Russell Part 1 Let me start by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I said I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook years. There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I was worried. He was a pretty notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he just stopped caring. Then, one night I saw him log on. Before I could initiate conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. That was when he told me about the no-end house. It got its name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliche. Reach the final room of the building and you win 500 bucks. There were nine rooms in all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently, Peter had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who knows what the fuck addict, so I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out 
at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone, that it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. I told him I would check it out the next night, and no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise, $500 sounded too good to be true. I had to go. I set out the following night. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. Have you ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary, but for some reason chills crawl up your spine? I walked towards the building, and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the front door. My heart slowed, and I let out a relieved sigh as I entered. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Room one this way. Eight more to follow. Reach the end and you win. I chuckled and made my way through the first door. The first area was laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween owl of a Kmart, complete with ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At the far end was an exit. It was the only door besides the one I entered through. I rushed through the fake spider webs and headed for the second door. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. Not only was there a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seem to have a Halloween soundtrack. That one that you find at a 99 cent store, playing on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a Syria, but I guess they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puff chest across the room to the next area. I reached the doorknob and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open that door. A feeling of dread hit me so hard that I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrifying moments and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room three is where things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of the wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, casting a few shadows across the floors and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. With the exception of the chairs, there were others. I had barely walked in the door and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. That set me off. Was somebody locking the doors as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that said automatically? Maybe. But I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair's shadow remained. But the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid. So I wrote the shadows off as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made my way through the halfway point of the room. I looked down, and as I took my steps, that's when I saw it, or didn't see it. 
my shadow wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself without thinking into the room beyond. The fourth room was possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all light seemed to be sucked out and put back into the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, not able to move. I'm not afraid of the dark, and never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand out in front of my face, and I didn't even know what I was doing. I would never have been able to tell. Darkness doesn't describe it. I couldn't hear anything. It was dead silent. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. <laughs> Wasn't even sure there was one this time. Then the silence was broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around wildly, but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me, but I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I had never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe to true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what this thing had in store for me. The lights flashed for a second, and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing, and I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness, and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest. I couldn't hear this goddamn sound for another minute. I ran backwards away from the noise and fumbled for the door handle. I turned it and fell into room five. Before I describe five to you, you have to understand something. I am not a drug addict. I have no history of drug abuse or any sort of psychosis short of childhood's hallucinations that I mentioned earlier. And those were only when I was really tired or just waking. I entered the no-end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, my view of room five was from my back looking up at the ceiling. What I saw didn't scare me, it simply surprised me. Trees had grown into the room and towered above my head. The ceilings of this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was at the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room of them all. I couldn't even see the door from where I was. Various bushes and trees must have blocked my line of sight with the exit. Up to this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier, but this was paradise compared to the last room. I also assumed that whatever was in that room stayed back there. 
I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping bugs and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be my only company in this room. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I heard the birds and bugs and other animals, but I didn't see any of them. I began to wonder how big this house was. From the outside, when I first walked up to it, it looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but this was an almost full forest in here. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls either. The only way that I knew I was still inside was that the floor matched the other rooms, the standard dark wood paneling. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal a door. After moments of walking, I felt a mosquito on my arm. I shook it and kept going. A second later, I felt about ten more land on my skin in different places. I felt them crawl up and down my arms and my legs, and a few made their way to my face. I flailed wildly to get them off, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream. More of a whimper, to be honest. I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawling. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch. But these bugs could touch me and they were everywhere. I began to crawl. I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight, and I still hadn't even seen the exit. So I just crawled, my skin wriggling with the presence of those phantom bugs, and after what seemed like hours, I found the door. I grabbed the nearest tree and propped myself up, mindlessly stabbing my arms and legs to no avail. I tried to run, but couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it, the low home from before. It was coming from the next room, and it was deeper. I could almost feel it inside my body, like when you're standing next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs on me lessened as the home grew louder. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let go, the bugs would return, and there was no way I would make it back to room four. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door marked six, my hand shakily grasping the knob. The hum was so loud that I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think. There was nothing I could do but move on. Room six was next, and room six was hell. I closed the door behind me, my eyes held shut and my ears ringing. The home was surrounding me. As the door clicked into place, the home was gone. I opened my eyes in surprise to see the door that I had just shut was gone as well, too. It was just a wall now. I looked around in shock. This room was identical to room three. The same chair and lamp. 
but with the correct amount of shadows this time. The only difference was that there was no exit door and the one I came in through was gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment, I fell into what I now know was insanity. I didn't scream. I didn't make a sound. At first, I scratched softly. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was there somewhere. I just knew it was, and I scratched where the doorknob was. I clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, my nails being filed down to the skin against the wood, and I fell to my knees. The only sound in the room, the incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I knew it was just there. I knew if I could just get past this wall. Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun in one motion, and I leaned against the wall behind me, and I saw what had spoken to me, and to this day I regret ever turning around. There was a little girl. She was wearing a soft white dress that went to her ankles. She had long blonde hair to the middle of her black and white skin and blue eyes. She was the most frightening thing that I had ever seen, and I know that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human and his toes were hoofs. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying, and it was synonymous with the little girl that was in front of me. They were the same form. I can't really describe it, but when I saw them, I saw them at the same time. They shared that spot in the room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak. I could barely even see my mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I had never been more scared than when I was trapped in that fourth room, but that was before room six. I just stood there staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped here with it. And then it spoke again. David, you should have listened. When, I sp when it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl. But the other form spoke through my mind. I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating that sentence over and over in my mind. And I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness, and yet I couldn't take my eyes off what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I had passed out, but the room wouldn't let me. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open, and the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of those battery-powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me, but for some reason, seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it had headed to, and I looked around at the room. I was getting out of here. 
I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place ever again. I knew that this room was hell, and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first, it was just my eyes that moved. I searched the walls for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big, so it didn't take up long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growling lower as the form strayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hand on the floor and I lifted myself to all fours and turned and began to scan the wall behind me. And then I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now right at my back, whispering into my mind of how I shouldn't have come. I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. A large rectangle was scratched into the wood with a small dent chipped away at the center of it. Right in front of my eyes, I saw a large seven that I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond that wall where room five was moments ago. I don't know how I had done it. Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door. I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into that wall what I needed the most, an exit to the next room. Room 7 was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason, it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both my hands on the large 7 in front of me. I pushed. I pushed as hard as I could, and the demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, that I was going to die, and I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. I pushed, and I screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push the wall through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut, and I screamed, and the demon was gone, and I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered. Just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have time to wail. I turned back to the seven and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door. It wasn't the one I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large seven on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the doorknob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room six. I couldn't. But if this was only room six, I couldn't imagine what seven had in store. I must have stood there for an hour, just staring at the seven. And finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room seven. I stumbled through the door, mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed, and when I realized where I was, I was outside, not outside like room five, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and tried, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell, and I didn't care about the prize that was promised. I turned around and saw that the door I had just went through was the entrance. I walked to my car and drove home, thinking of how nice the shower sounded. As I pulled up to my house, I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving the no-end house had faded, and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual from the house and made it my way through my front door.
I entered and immediately went up to my room. There, on my bed, was my cat, Baskerville. He was the first living thing that I had seen all night, and when I reached to pet him, he hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock, as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's an old cat. I jumped into the shower, and I got ready for what I was expecting to be a sleepless night. After my shower, I went to the kitchen to make something to eat. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room. What I saw would be forever burned into my mind, however. My parents were laying on the ground, naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to near unidentifiable masses. Their limbs were moved and placed next to their bodies, and their heads were placed on their chests, facing me. The most unsettling part was their expressions. They were smiling as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed right there in the family room, and I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess. Then I saw it. A door that was never there before. A door with a large eight scrawled on it in blood. I was still in the house. I was standing in my family room, but I was in room seven. The faces of my parents smiled wider as I realized this. They weren't my parents. They couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. The door marked eight was across the room behind the mutilated bodies in front of me. I knew I had to move on, but at that moment I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind and they grounded me to where I stood. I vomited again and nearly collapsed. Then the hum returned. It was louder than ever and it filled the house and shook the walls. The hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the doors and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard it seemed they were going to crumble, but, but still the faces smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. I was now between the two bodies. A few feet away from the door, the dismembered hands clawed their way across the carpet towards me while the faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want to hear the voices match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths and the hands were inches from my feet. In a dash of desperation, I lunged towards the door. I threw it open and slammed it behind me. Roommate. I was done. After what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything else this fucking house could throw at me that I couldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of the no-end house. Unfortunately, things got more disturbing and more terrifying and more unspeakable in roommate. I still have trouble believing what I saw in roommate. Again, the room was a carbon copy of rooms three and six. 
but sitting in the usually empty chair was a man. After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind accepted the fact that the man sitting in the chair was me. Not someone who looked like me. It was David Williams. As I walked closer, I had to get a better look, even though I was sure of it. He looked up at me, and I noticed the tears in his eyes. Please, please, don't do it. Please don't hurt me. What? I asked. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are. He was sobbing now. You're going to hurt me, and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began to rock back and forth. It was actually pretty pathetic looking, especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet. Standing there talking to myself, I wasn't scared, but I wouldn't be soon. Why are you? You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me if you want to leave. You're going to hurt me. Why are you saying this? Just calm down, all right? Let's just figure this. And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes in me as me, except for a small red patch on a shirt embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me, please. You're going to hurt me. My eyes didn't leave the small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors were plain and simple, but after a while they got more ambiguous. Seven was scratched into the wall by my own hands and eight was marked in the blood above the bodies of my parents. But nine, this number, was on a living person. Worse still, it was a person that looked just like me. David, I had to ask. Yes. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to David. He was me, right down to that voice. But that nine? I paced around for a few minutes while, I, while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied the walls and the floor around the chair, sticking my head beneath to see if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair was a knife, and attached was a tag that read, To David, from Management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag, was something sinister. I wanted to throw up, and the last thing I wanted to do was remove the knife from under that chair. The other day, we were still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here? How did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that as I knelt on the cold wooden floor, I also sat in the chair sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. 
my thoughts for some reason returned to Peter and whether or not he had gotten this far. If he did, he met Peter Terry sobbing in this chair, rocking back and forth. I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair, and the other David immediately went quiet. David, he said in my voice, What, what are you going to do? I lifted from myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. David was still sitting in the chair, though he was very calm now. He looked up at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the knife in my hand and gripped it tighter. I didn't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now, his voice was slightly deeper than my own. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I had mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. He looked up at me, terrified. It was like looking into the mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it in my body. David looked up at me as I looked down at myself, and the hum was getting louder, and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell on the room, and I was falling. The darkness around me was nothing like I had experienced up to that point. Room four was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me. I wasn't even sure if I was falling after a while. I felt weightless, covered in dark. Then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost, depressed, suicidal. The sight of my parents entered my mind, and I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it. And the mind has trouble differentiating between what's real and what isn't. The sadness only deepened. I was in room nine for what seemed like days. The final room. And that's exactly what it was. The no-end house had an end and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever, accompanied by nothing but darkness. Not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself. I couldn't hear anything. Sight was completely useless here. I searched for a taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt the disembodiment and completely lost. I knew where I was. This was hell. Room nine was hell. Then it happened. A light. One of those stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. I felt ground come up from below. And I was standing. After a moment or two of gathering my thoughts and senses, I slowly walked towards the light. As I approached the light, it took form. 
It was a vertical slit down the side of an unmarked door. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I had started, the lobby of the no-end house. It was exactly how I left it, still empty, still decorated with childish Halloween decorations. After everything that happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. After a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place, trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with a name handwritten on it. Immensely curious, yet cautious, I mustered up the courage to open the envelope. Inside was a letter, again handwritten. David Williams, congratulations. You have made it to the end of the Noland House. Please, accept this prize as a token of great achievement. Yours forever, Management. With the letter were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car, and I laughed as I drove home, and I laughed as I pulled into my driveway, and I laughed as I opened my front door, and I laughed as I saw the small tin etched into the wood. like to thank this time to thank you all for listening to this episode this podcast is something that i have wanted to do for a very long time if you would like to leave me a note or if you have a story you would like for me to narrate i can be reached at let's get creepy podcast at yahoo.com facebook.com slash dahlia creepy that's d-a-h-l-i-a-c-r-e-e-p-y or at anchor.fm slash let's get creepy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the time to rate and review it on your preferred podcast listening apps, as this will help other listeners find me. Once again, thank you all so much. Stay creepy, darklings. <laughs>